Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles. And this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, as well as news from the front lines, we bring you updates from the NATO meeting in Brussels, the latest from Washington, D.C., as British conservative politicians attempt to persuade American Republicans to continue supporting Ukraine. And we speak to researcher and author Dr. Jade McGlynn about her recent travels across Ukraine. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 29th of November, one year and 278 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes, US editor Tony Diver, and author of two books on Russian ideology and an academic at the King's College London Department of War Studies, Dr Jade McGlynn. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So let's start in the east. It looks like... Uh, Russia has continued this, what's suspected to be the third major wave, third assault on Avdivka. This comes from Alexander Tarnowski, who's the uh, Ukrainian commander responsible for that area. He said uh, Moscow had significantly increased its activity, including with armoured vehicles. He says they carried out nearly 20 airstrikes. Now, I don't know if that's individual strikes or kind of waves off of, if you like, four missiles, 56 assault waves at his forces and fired more than a thousand artillery rounds. Now, I think that last figure, a thousand, that that fits, I think, with the estimated expenditure at the moment. We think Russia's firing between 10 and 20,000 artillery rounds a day. So given the the importance that Russia has placed on Avdivka, a thousand in a day, seems about right. Could be more, actually. But yeah, it does look like it's a more concerted effort with the um, the use of armoured vehicles as well in there and aircraft. Now, geolocated footage published on the, on the 28th, which was yesterday, I think, was it? Yeah. Shows Russian forces marginally advanced in the industrial zone to the southeast of Avdivka. We don't have a figure for the cost that that any advance there came at other movements across the front so just slightly further down to the to the south and the west ukrainian forces have advanced in western zaporizhia marginally and also continued their attacks to to expand and break out of the bridgehead that they've got across the dnipro on the left bank the east bank of the dnipro um up into uh, into Russia, and a uh, Ukrainian drone, or alleged Ukrainian drone, was uh, was shot down over Moscow. This is coming from Sergei Sobyanin, who we've, we've met before, the mayor of, of Moscow. He said Russian air defence forces had destroyed a drone over the Podolsk district. That's about 10 k's-ish south, due south of the city centre in Moscow. He said no damage or casualties at the site where the debris fell. And uh, meanwhile... I mean, I just, I'm just pausing there because these reports, increased drone strikes, I, I, it's just odd that there's, there are any kind of in the ones and twosies. I, I'm just speculating. I'm not putting it past the, these being either fabricated or, or false flag just, so, just to keep up sort of domestic morale and in, in Russia this is and also keep up the narrative that the Ukrainian Nazis are, are on the doorstep firing, firing drones. But yeah, that's just speculation. Separately, Ukraine's Air Force said it had destroyed all 21 drones in a strike. Also reported two missiles fired. I don't know if they are from the wording. It's not clear if they say they've shot down the missiles, but no no supporting evidence of, of any damage or, or destruction and casualties from those missiles. So I think maybe they shot 
it all down, which they say was launched by Russia. They say the launch point was the port city of Primorsko Aktarsk. That's in Russia's southern Krasnodar Krai area. That's the eastern side of the Sea of Azov. It's about 150 k's southwest of Rostov-on-Don. And then uh, over, over to Finland. Finland says it's going to close its entire border with Russia tonight after accusing Moscow of orchestrating the, the recent surge of asylum seekers, which we've, we've spoken about before. I think Francis was talking about this uh, recently. So Prime Minister Pateri Orpo said the last remaining open border crossing, which is at, oh, crikey, prepare yourselves, via Yosepi. I have been practicing that. I hope it was accurate. Uh, in the far north is going to shut for two weeks until the 13th of December. So Interior Minister Mari Grantanen said this is organised an organised activity, not a genuine emergency. And the closure comes after weeks, as we've been reporting, weeks of rising tensions between the countries with a thousand migrants given bikes and scooters by Russia to cross Finland's 830-mile border or to get get up to the border without a visa since August. There's some, uh, Francis covered this, didn't he? He said there was some, um, there's some law that for the, in the border zone, you can't travel on foot, you have to be in a vehicle. And so they've been given bikes to, to cycle up to the, the border post and, uh, and create mischief. Now, Finland has steadily closed the border crossings in protest against the increase in migrants, many of whom thought to come from Africa and the Middle East. And Russia... Well, you may remember Russia did warn of countermeasures when Finland applied and to join NATO earlier this year. So maybe these are the countermeasures that are being meted out against Finland. And just finally for me, so I was with a few other defence journalists last night. We had the first on-record and an off-record section chat with Grant Shapps, Britain's new defence secretary. A few bits and pieces coming out in the next few days. But just on, on Ukraine, he said, we were talking about support for Ukraine. He said, there's nothing closer to my heart. And he did, he and his family did host a Ukrainian family for a year. But he said, there's nothing close to my heart. In my view, Putin not winning the war is one of the most existentially important things that can happen in the world. It's at that level. I do not think there was a viable outcome where Putin wins, not just for Ukraine, obviously, but for peace in the rest of the world. I asked him about support, uh, in particular for the tanks. So I made the point that Britain has got 227 Challenger 2 tanks. We're upgrading 148 to Challenger 3 status, gifted 14 to Ukraine. That leaves 65 in a pool. Now, from that, you need to train. You need a pool of, of vehicles to um, to backfill the ones you know that that are, that are damaged on the front line or in training or what have you. But, you know, that's quite a lot. 65, 65 Challenger 2 would ruin your day on your doorstep. But we had been told, we, the Telegraph, had been told some weeks ago by a defence uh, defence source that not a single tank could be spared. So I was just asking Mr Shapps about this, you know, can you splice the numbers for me? He said the the question of support and equipment support, he said, this is obviously a question that I'm balancing every waking hour. We still have a responsibility to protect our own country. I'm always leaning into whatever I can do. My view is we have to give Ukraine what they need for the roi- for the reasons I pointed out at the beginning. This is an existential fight. So funny old thing. He stayed well away from the maths, um, but he he in prose very supportive. Although you know, let's keep an eye on the next Ramstein next round of the Ramstein group of meetings. And that's that's it for me, David. Well, thank you very much, Dom, for all of that. Joe, it's great to have you back with us. You're in Brussels at this NATO meeting. I know you've been very busy filing all morning and yesterday. What can you tell us? Yeah, so I've rushed out of a meeting with a source of mine. I am currently crouched by what is the NATO public library, looking at, I think, a poster of uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, quite oddly. But yeah, what's interesting, first of all, I'll talk you through David Cameron's contribution to the meeting. He's our new foreign secretary. He was in Ukraine see Zelensky and other people two weeks ago and he started his morning by saying that like mentioning his trip to Ukraine and saying how he had promised that Britain would do everything it takes to help Ukraine repel Vladimir Putin's aggression. Um, Arriving at the summit in Brussels today was more of a meeting than a summit. Cameron said that he was here to help build a consensus around NATO's 31 allies and Sweden uh, which is still waiting to join NATO that this that everyone had to do everything it takes to help Ukraine at this time. A lot of that centred around Cameron described as NATO's collective uh, economy. It's capable, it's military production capacity, which he said was 30 times that of Russia's. So he, he said basically it was 
trying to say, look, there is no excuses for NATO not to step up and continue supporting Ukraine for the long term, for as long as it takes. So the main theme that he sort of argued throughout the day was the military production base and how allies can team up and use to join their economies together, sort of not just in the EU, but as NATO to work together to produce ramp up, whether it be sort of 155mm ammunition for artillery, whether it be to, yeah, for tank parts, other air defence missiles, every, everything that basically the West has not been building on mass since the Cold War and has uh, massively eaten into those supplies post-invasion by Russia. And that sort of comes on a wider background of a not major panic. Everyone's being very upbeat, as they always are at these meetings, but a slight undertone of questioning over whether the West is doing enough to support Ukraine. So Dmitry Kuleba, the Ukrainian foreign minister, he came in to the meeting, and this is behind closed doors, this is from my sources, and he basically challenged NATO allies and Sweden to be as resilient as Ukrainian citizens as, as they have been in facing up to the Russian invasion. He repeated the usual sort of warnings, look, it's we're not in a stalemate. He pointed at the success the Ukrainians had in the Black Sea and opening a maritime corridor through through the apparent Russian blockade there. He spoke about a tough winter ahead for Ukraine and acknowledged that that Russia is going to once again try and freeze Ukrainians in submission by targeting sort of heating and electricity supply stations. And then he also he also mentioned that he actually did this in public because with one journalist shouted out, what, what about the stalemate? And he goes, look, there's no stalemate. So the Ukraine is clearly, the polit political side is clearly trying to move away from this idea that the conflict is now into this period of stalemate. Um, Jens Stoltenberg, the NATO Secretary General, in his um, post-meeting press conference, he used his opportunity to basically mention everything that Russia was doing to keep the war going. But he didn't mention as much on the West, what the West is doing to help. He mentioned a new alliance of 20 countries that are helping Ukraine with air defence. But he was, he was more sort of warning that, look, this is what Russia is doing. It's willing to throw as much as it can at producing weapons. It's got its sort of production lines whirring 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's willing to throw endless men into the meat grinder, et cetera, et cetera, which was quite interesting. There's been some US warnings. So Russian President Vladimir Putin will not make a peace in Ukraine before he knows the results of the November 24 US election. And, and that's according to a senior State Department official. And it basically comes amid questions over whether whether Donald Trump is going to get elected and whether on the first day in office, if he does get elected, is he going to phone Vladimir Putin and broker his own peace deal on behalf of Ukraine, which would be tremendously hated by everyone. But sometimes when you're the most important man in the world, you can kind of do those things. Yes, yeah, so the senior official briefing after the foreign ministerial meeting said, my expectation is that Putin won't make a peace or meaningful peace before he sees the result of our election. And that is sort of something the domestic politics I'll leave to leave to Tony because he's the expert, but it's it's something that Anthony Blinken, the US Secretary of State, actually mentioned. He mentioned it in his press comments, but also in the, clo the closed door section, he, made, he spoke of the importance of what the US administration is doing to break the, the blockade of from Congress and Senate in stopping future aid packages to Ukraine. So it's it's sort of a very important uh, thing. So going on to, there's a few other things. As I said, Dmitry Kuleva said, look, Ukraine's not going to back down. He actually, again, what I was speaking about yesterday, about artillery shells, he repeated that line that about the EU has only delivered about 300,000 of its promised shells to Ukraine so far. So there were sort of interventions from non-EU members of NATO saying that, look, you have to not think of just an EU market, you can think of a NATO market where you can have the US works with uh, EU countries, the UK works with EU countries, Canada works with EU countries to basically boost up this uh, delivery of shells. Ian Stoltenberg, as, a, as I said, uh, going back, I sorry, I missed this, it went over my head, uh, he, he, one of his things that he said Russia was doing to keep the war going is building up a massive missile stockpile, which he said would be used to try and leave Ukraine in the cold and dark over a winter campaign. Uh, Germany's Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock called on Ukraine supporters to create a winter shield over the country to protect it from Russian attacks. Once again, warning of this perceived expected Russian attacks on critical infrastructure in Ukraine. Then I should touch on, so nothing really happened in terms of Turkey's accession to negotiations with Sweden. So Turkey's been blocking Sweden's membership of NATO for quite some time now. 
lots of allies argued to Turkey saying, look, you should drop that opposition. It's it's for the good of transatlantic and euro-Atlantic security, as they use in their jargon, but nothing really happened on that front. And then I will touch on the poisoning story that I wrote, which was in today's paper, but we spoke about it briefly yesterday, of Krila Budinov's wife, Marianne, Marianne, Mariana. So Ukraine has now come out and said it believes that Russia poisoned his wife, and so Budinov is the wife Budnova is the wife of Ukraine's military intelligence agency's head, which kind of leads to that idea that it was an apparent assassination, basically in the, the, the heart of Kyiv, so quite scary. So Ukrainian investigators, their main hypothesis is that Russia was involved in the poisoning attempt, and that was according to Ukraine's military intelligence spokesman, Andrei Yusov, and he told that to AFP. So Andrei added, the target was the wife because it is simply impossible to reach the commander directly. So yeah, it's quite worrying. And I'll stop there because I've gone on for quite some time. Well, thank you very much, Joe. Later, we'll come back to you, I think, to ask what you think the top lines, the most important developments you see at this NATO meeting. But let's go to our US editor, Tony Diver. Tony, there's been quite some excitement in Washington this week. There's a British delegation in town. What are they coming to Washington for? Hi, David. Yes, there is a British delegation in town. uh, And it's led by Liz Truss, the former prime minister, who is here to try and make the case to... Some of these reticent Republicans that Joe mentioned who don't like the idea of giving further US support to Ukraine, she's tried to make the case to them that actually it's in the US's interests and indeed the West's wider interests that Ukraine should win that war. She's accompanied by two other former Tory leaders, Ian Duncan Smith and Lord Howard, and Mark Francois and Jack Lepresti, a couple of Conservative MPs as well. So they've been over here, they arrived uh, early on Monday, uh, and they've been talking to some of these House Republicans, having conversations with officials over here, and basically trying to drum up a bit more support for Ukraine. Um, she said last night in a reception that I went to uh, in, in Washington, she said that the key thing here is not just that Ukraine wins the war, but Russia loses. She says that the thing that US lawmakers need to be focused on here is it's not just about what happens in the region. It's not just about exactly where those front lines are, where the borders are, but it's about the message that the West sends more widely to Russia and indeed to China. So there is an interesting kind of geopolitical argument being made by this British delegation, which is looking at the big picture here, they say that we need Reaganite American leadership, we need an America which has a sort of muscular posture in the East, and which says to countries which try and annex territory from other places, be that Russia and Ukraine, or indeed China and Taiwan, that the West won't stand for it, and that they will arm those countries and protect democracies against what they describe as a, as a new axis of authoritarianism. So there's real sort of big picture discussions happened here. I mean, often when we talk about this issue, and we have done before on the podcast, we've talked about some of the sort of nitty gritty, some of the, the little deals that are being struck with some of these House Republicans in an attempt to get some kind of package over the line. But actually, the conversations here this week are much more about sort of the wider picture between East and West, the role that America takes in the world. So, so it has been fascinating to listen to. I think if you look at some of the things that some of prominent Republicans have been saying over the last few months, not least Donald Trump, but also some of the other Republican frontrunners for the presidential race next year, you look at Donald Trump, you look at uh, Ron DeSantis, you look at Vivek, Vivek Ramaswamy and a couple of others, what they're really saying is that by Make America Great Again, their sort of slogan, what they mean is America to withdraw its role as global policeman to engage less with NATO to spend less on foreign wars and basically to remove the US as a kind of backstop against other countries, including Russia and China, from trying to take territory from elsewhere. And and what Liz Truss and others are doing is uh, cautioning against that. They're saying that what will happen if, if America does that is that you'll end up emboldening some of these regimes. You'll embolden Vladimir Putin and President Xi uh, and you know you'll ultimately end up with the loss of democracy and freedom in some of these countries around the world. So it's all, it's all top-level geopolitical stuff over here, David, and it has been absolutely fascinating so far. And Tony, what, how do you think that's going down? Do you get a sense from the American side of how they're reacting to this visiting delegation of, of Brits, t- um, t- telling them all this? And, um, and also on that, what's next? Are they staying there for a few days? What's happening? Well, it's a difficult one, I think, because the fact that these MAGA Republicans, as they're known, believe that America should come first, but perhaps doesn't leave them particularly well disposed to visiting British politicians telling them what to do. But yeah, I get the impression that it is actually going down 
they, the, these people are at least res, uh, at least receptive to the ideas that are being put to them by the British delegation. And, and remember that we are actually in the middle of kind of crunch negotiations over what happens with this Ukraine package. So I think probably it's come at the right time. And I think probably it's a good thing for the British government as well. I think it's a good thing for the British government, you know, without being too hands on in American legislative politics for this delegation of UK politicians to be making arguments that are very similar to the ones that the number 10 makes, that Rishi Sunak makes about the continuing importance of the war. So yeah, they're here, they're here for the rest of the week. Most of that will be private meetings. Most of that will be stuff going on on the hill behind closed doors. That's really the purpose of the visit. But there was a public event yesterday where Ian Duncan Smith spoke at the Heritage Foundation, which is that Reaganite Washington think tank, which was so important to the formation of Ronald Reagan's foreign policy. He spoke there and spoke about this new idea of the axis of authoritarianism and warned against the overweening power of, uh, of Russia, China, Iran and, and various other states. Tony, hello, mate. It's Dom here. Just uh, jumping in, if I may, with a, a quick question. Um, the I'm interested in where the argument is or the debate is in Washington between pragmatism and the sort of values around the war here. So I'm thinking it's a fairly straightforward argument to say this is a the fight in Ukraine. The war in Ukraine is, is over uh, or if the West does not support it, see it through to the end and to see Russia defeated. The values are sufficiently undermined that it could seriously undermine security in, in East Asia vis-a-vis China, Taiwan. Now, is that... Is that kind of link, is this debate seen as a pragmatic or as a values-based argument that if you if you don't support Ukraine, then there's more likely to be a, a challenge from, from China, Taiwan? Or is it seen in pra- pragmatic or practical terms that, yes, there's likely to be a challenge from China against Taiwan, which is why the US have to really focus in that area to the detriment of Ukraine? I'm just wondering how hard that argument is being debated in Washington. Well, I think, yeah, there's a couple of things going on. I think on the reticent Republican side, the majority of the debate is a practical one and it's a pragmatic one and it's about budgets. And there aren't very many people who are making an argument that, you know, in principle, we shouldn't be supporting Ukraine. In principle, it's the wrong thing to do. These people are talking about the effect on the US's domestic capacity, the fact that they're able to spend less money on social security. They're especially able to spend less money on, on border and immigration, which is the thing that a lot of these Republicans are most concerned about. So, Yes, on, on that side, it's very practical. I think what we're seeing here is a sort of meeting of values-based and practical arguments with these values-based arguments are basically coming from the side of people who are supportive of being engaged in these foreign wars. So, yeah, I think there is a bit of a meeting in minds there. There is also a practical argument, though, being made by people who support the war, which is that, yes, it's very expensive to keep sending Ukraine weapons now, but it will only get more expensive if these wars continue. If we're able to arm Ukraine now, we're able to push Russia back over the border, we're able to get a long-term settlement which involves no Russian involvement over the Ukrainian border or indeed in Crimea, then sending that message actually saves money in the long run because it means you don't have to go to war in Taiwan, it means you don't have to station more troops around the world, it means you don't have to spend more of your weapon stockpiles in the next decade. So I think there is a there is a practical argument here, but it's a, it's a much more long-term one on the sort of supportive Ukraine side. And, you know, as we know about American politics, there is always a weird combination of short term and long term thinking. And when we're talking about Republicans in the House who are elected every two years and when you've got a presidential election approaching next year, I think it is a bit of a challenge to get these people to think in long term terms because there are much more immediate political deadlines at stake. But, yeah, I think there is a combination of those arguments being made and some combination of them, plus a bit of difficult political wrangling behind the scenes and probably some kind of backroom deal being struck with the White House is probably what will get us over the line in the end. But the deadlines on this are not so clear. We missed the major deadline for passing a big package for Ukraine and Israel because the funding deal that went through Congress recently was stripped of those foreign packages when it was ultimately given its presidential seal. So we're now looking at putting more money into perhaps the defence spending bill, which comes early next year. But we don't exactly know where these votes are going to be. It's not like there is an imminent vote on this stuff. And it all has to be negotiated with the new House Speaker to work out how exactly it will manage to get through Congress. So in the meantime, you've got people in the White House. You've got Jake Sullivan, Joe Biden's national security advisor. You've got John Kirby, the spokesman for the White House National Security Council, saying that 
you know, the longer this goes on, the more that this funding is held up in Congress, the smaller the packages that the US is going to be able to provide to Ukraine are. And actually, there is currently a limited amount of money in the budget, which has already been signed off. There's a limited amount of the US's stockpile, which can be given to Ukraine. And the longer this goes on, the smaller and smaller the packages are going to be as the White House tries to make that money last as long as possible. If they were to go into a vote tomorrow and pass a $61 billion package, which is what Joe Biden has requested, then we'd probably see a pretty significant stepping up in the in the sort of arms that the US is able to provide to Ukraine in the coming months. Well, thank you so much, Tony, for that update from Washington. And thank you, Joe, for calling in from Brussels. Tony, do stay around. It'd be great to hear your final thoughts at the end of this. Um, let's go to our guest, author of two books on Russian ideology and an academic at the KCL Department of War Studies, Dr. Jade McGlynn. Jade, thank you so much for coming back onto the podcast. Um, we know that you've been travelling uh, about in Ukraine recently. Can you tell us where you've been what, and what you've seen? Yes, hello. Thank you for having me again. Um, so um, I've been in Kharkiv and Kharkiv region, travelling about, so out in the northeast. And then I also went to Kiev and then on to Odessa. So, and obviously I had to start in Lviv because you can't get into, the, well, it's difficult coming from Britain to get into the country without going through Lviv. So I feel like I've done all of the corners. And during your travels, could you give us a sense of what you've been seeing in the country? Um, why did you go to these areas in, in particular and what were you looking for? So I spent most of my trip in Kharkiv and that's really increasingly where I am now. And partly that's to do with the fact that there are so many deoccupied territories there because, you know, my interests lie in Russian propaganda in the occupied territories, but also Russian efforts to indoctrinate children. I suppose Russia's efforts to destroy Ukrainian identity, of course, it, that has its... Um, most grotesque realization in the mass killing of Ukrainians, but it also has, I suppose, more administrative or bureaucratic functions that also ultimately are, are aimed at that end goal. And it's helpful to be able to visit the deoccupied territories and to speak to people there and to, to understand a little bit more of, of, of what happened. And yes. Absolutely. Would you talk us through some of, I mean, maybe not conclusions, because I realise you've, you've only just sort of leaving the country, but some of the things maybe you heard, some of the things you saw that maybe you haven't seen before when looking at this, you know, what, what would you want our audience to know about what these people went through? I mean, I suppose I myself can't ever truly really know what they went through, but often it's just the different personal stories and how much I think that they're not always understood in the West. So there was the starosta, which is like the elder, like the person in charge, basically, of a village. She's kind of the most senior person who you go to if something goes wrong. And it was occupied by the Russians. And he and his, he told me a story of how he and his brother both married two sisters. Um, so the brothers married sisters. And the sisters were from Russia. They were from Varonish region. And they... The sisters both died during the occupation, one of them of a heart attack following the bombings and the shellings. And another one died, well, his, his wife died outside of the village. So she was in free territory. She was in, she was in territory controlled by, by Ukraine, but she died as a result of, 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 of an attack, of a, of a bombing attack. And they managed to get her ashes back but they couldn't obviously they couldn't bury they couldn't bury them they couldn't bury her during this particular period and in the end they managed to and now these two sisters from Varonezh Russia lie in this in this graveyard in eastern Ukraine about five ten kilometers from the Russian border and he, he spoke about it so matter-of-factly but I just thought that one little story, it sort of encapsulates just how much I think that this war is not just completely horrific and grotesque, but it's also a choice. This isn't something based in ethnicity. This is about a worldview on the one hand, about people choosing to not stand up for what is pretty much just basic moral concepts, basic moral sense of do not kill, you know, of, of don't kill children, don't rape women en masse. And, and those who don't choose that. And in some ways, although perhaps 
at first it could sound like, oh, it shows the complications of identity, blah, blah. I, I think that really it doesn't. It, it actually just shows how much this war really is one of those very rare examples when you, you do have a good and a bad, a black and a white. Jade, can I ask you, and I think this question will have some more weight, I think, just given what we've been talking about over the past half an hour. But you recently wrote on Twitter, sitting in Kharkiv while following Western politics and news is like peering into another planet. Can you talk us through what you mean by that and why you wanted to post that? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I posted it because that's very much what I was thinking at the time, but um, and still really think... Often, and I felt this way pretty much since, probably I would say since July, travelling to Ukraine and having conversations there and then coming back home and having having conversations there, obviously they're all basically about the same thing, but they're completely different conversations. Partly that's a knowledge level. Of course, Ukrainians know more about what's going on in the war. And, and I have to say that the knowledge level isn't always so high with people that you speak to, and I'm not talking about the public. But also just that sense of what is at stake. I think that sometimes it feels to me as if our leaders, and I have to say I was very cheered by um, I, what Dom was saying earlier about his meeting with with the um, with Grant Shapps, because that's exactly the sort of language that I think is, is appropriate. But what I want to see is, or I, well, what I would like to see, obviously I have no right to make any demands, but what I would like to see to, to cheer me up or to make me feel like I didn't, exist between two different worlds would be action to back that up because it's all very well saying you know we really have to support Ukraine and this is existential but we're not rearming we're not really taking any proper measures to do that um and and I think that's what worries me is that sense that on the level of rhetoric yes great but on that deeper level of when I when you speak to an awesome okay great so what are you going to do it still feels like people are trying to pretend that there's some imagined status quo we can go back to, and and there really isn't. I don't think that this war right now is not existential for, let's say, just for us as Britons, but Ukraine losing it would definitely be existential for the European security order that, that, that I've grown up in, that you've grown up in. Jade, in your travels across Ukraine, what do you make of the morale of civilians and soldiers? I think this is potentially a very important question, especially ahead of what looks like, well, we're already in the beginnings of it, of course, a potentially very harsh winter. Before answering, I'm just going to use a very quick analogy so that it's interpreted correctly, because obviously this is this can be a sticky question. Let's say that um, France was trying to conquer England or conquer the UK. I may or may not like this current government. I may or may not be happy with their decisions on this or that, but that at no point would ever translate to me hoping that France would conquer Britain. And that's the same way that it needs to be understood in Ukraine. Ukrainians' morale to fight Russians is, of course, well, it can't go anywhere. It's not an issue of it being high or low. It's about it being steadfast because it's really just a matter of life or death, especially for many of the soldiers, especially for those associated with some of the more high-profile regiments. They really are either going to die fighting or get shot in the head. So it's not a great variety of options there. Secondly, they there's just so much anger and outrage, but also that sense that, let's say, for people aged between 20 and 45, it's, everything's been ruined for them, but they can still salvage something for their for generations to come, for their children. And that's such a prominent point among civilians who contribute to the war effort and also among soldiers, this idea of this has been going on for hundreds of years and it needs to stop. And the history is felt very, very keenly, particularly, of course, when Vladimir Putin himself... Um, does so many things to, to remind people of it, including the massive drone attack, the largest one so far on Kiev, on the night that marks the, the date when the Holodomor, the mass famine that killed at least 4 million Ukrainians, the man-made famine that killed at least 4 million Ukrainians, is marked. Jade, at the beginning of your answer there, you, you mentioned the sort of distinction between not necessarily supporting the government, but supporting a, a broader, deeper cause. Obviously, from London, we've observed 
from afar what appears to be an increase in tension in Ukraine's, on Ukraine's political scene. What's your take on this? What do you make of it? How, what have you seen when, when you've been in country? So I obviously, well, not obviously, um, perhaps it's not obvious, but I spend a lot of my time in Kharkiv in particular with, with soldiers, with people associated with the armed forces. So, and it's hard because they're fighting often really very heroically. It's very hard not to immediately sympathize with that position. So I suppose for anything I'm going to say, I should perhaps just acknowledge um, my position there. But there are some tensions, and I think it's, but I think they're both rooted, of course, in wanting Ukraine to win and just in disagreements over the best way to do it. But for me, I think that the best thing is, is for General Zaluzhny to be able to get on with his job and to be in control of what's happening because it's hard enough without having certain MPs launching tawdry attacks on on the commander-in-chief. Jade, I know that Dom and Tony may have questions for you, so I'm going to hand over to them now. But thank you so much for your time so far. It's been really fascinating and very moving. Jade, hi, Dom here. Thanks so much for joining us again. Hugely valuable input, as always. Putin gave a speech yesterday. I've only caught bits and pieces of it, but in it he reiterated the um, a two-part concept of Russian identity, saying... There was the Russian nation, which he claimed included Russians, Ukrainians and Belarusians. He put that at the centre of Russia's identity. And then a, a wider Russian world, including other non-East Slavic ethnicities in both Russia and across the former territories of or the territory of the former Soviet Union and Russian Empire. How are those arguments landing in Ukraine? How did you pick them up on your travels? And what else did you take from his speech yesterday? I mean, the argument, I'll start with the second part of the question, if that's okay. The argument is a pretty consistent one since 20, I mean, actually since before 2012, but it it was around, but since 2012 in particular, it's been very consistently articulated as such. So this idea that essentially you have like a core Russian, and there are two different words for Russian in Russian. (laughs) So you have Ruski, which is like an ethnic Russian, an Eastern Slav person. And then you have Rosyanin, which is somebody who is a citizen of the Russian Federation, but not necessarily a Slav. They could be um, a Russian Slav. They could be a, a Chechen or a Tatar. So this idea is, and it's written into several sort of conceptual doctrinal documents, is that the Russian people are the core of Russian civilization. They are essentially what it all derives from. So yes, everybody is equal, but some people are more equal than others and the Russians are more equal than others because they are, you know, the bearers. It is from them that this great civilization springs. So they should have this maybe like first among equals position. I mean, I I think when you, it's funny because I'm so used to reading about it in Russian, but saying it out loud in English makes it sound, well, just as, just as imperialistic and chauvinistic as it actually is. and in terms of how it's perceived in Ukraine, I doubt that anybody paid much attention to it. I think it's just, for them, it's just further proof again and again and again of something that they're probably at this point sort of tired from saying, which is that this is both an imperialist war of aggression, but it's also genocidal in the sense that it's aimed, and we've heard, they've said this again and again and again, it's aimed at destroying the very idea of Ukrainianness. And the Kremlin has been very open about this. If we don't want to hear it, that's fine. <laughs> but they it's not because they haven't said it. It's about destroying the very idea of Ukrainianness, which means the idea of Ukraine as an identity, as something that is not just a subset of Russia. Yeah, you're right. We, I mean, we have, we, if you listen, you, you, this is a re- repeated mantra. Now, you, you said that you, you've seen in the deoccupied areas a lot of the propaganda that Russia had used or had started to bring in and a lot of the ways they've been trying to indoctrinate in particular the youth. Can you give us any examples of actual the, the sort of practical aspects of that? What were they doing in terms of propaganda and indoctrination? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, in terms of the propaganda, it's very interesting because after the referendums happened, after the, the fake referenda obviously happened last September, it really 
began to split and um, you ended up almost with two levels of propaganda. One level that anybody in Russia would be able to see, I suppose, what we might call like an official type of propaganda, which focused on how everything was so great. Everybody was just getting lovely new shiny houses. Everything was much better than it had been, except it wasn't quite clear what had been. And reading it, you would just have the sense that these territories had always been Russian. There was really not even any mention of Ukraine or even any mention of the front or attacks. It was as if the war wasn't happening. And I found this fascinating. And then I realized it's because this propaganda isn't for the people living in occupied territories, even though it might be on federal channels associated there. This is propaganda for Russians reading about the occupied territories because Russians don't want to read or hear about all this nasty, all this nasty war things in case it might upset their mood. So and then it turns out there's a second tier of channels and different sources. And many of these channels are only available in the occupied territories. They are not available outside of the territories, not even in Russia itself, let alone anywhere else. You have to have a special. They come and they install often whether you like it or not, a satellite. Um, and you have to have it personally installed to have, the, and of course it's also then um, encoded, but you need to be physically on site and have the actual physical satellite dish attached to be able to access these channels. And these channels focus on first glance, they set, seem to focus on similar things, but actually when you listen, you see that the framing, what they're saying is quite different. So rather than, oh, Russia is great, it's all about how there's a lot of focus on how they found the resistance, people, uh, the, the underground resistance that has remained in the occupied territories, constantly saying, don't even think about it, basically, we will find you. And even if they're children, and we will get you. And bearing in mind that everybody knows where the torture chambers are. They're not hidden. They're often on the main streets in these towns and cities and, and villages even. That's a message that, that has a rather chilling resonance. Other messages are about Ukraine will never come. If it does come for you, it will see you as a traitor, as a collaborator, because you accepted a Russian passport. And there have been many cases, for example, in Zaporizhia last month of... The, uh, sorry, Zaporizhia region, the city, of course, is free. In Zaporizhia region last month of the Russian occupying, Russian occupiers threatening to take away people's children if they didn't take Russian passports. So they force people to take passports and then they say, look, now you've taken a passport. When Ukraine comes, it's going to see when, if Ukraine comes, and it probably won't because Ukraine is rubbish and we're great, but if Ukraine does come, do you even want that? Because they'll see you as a traitor and a collaborator and you'll have to go to prison for 10 or 15 years. So it's that constant undermining of any hope, but also, I suppose, of any reason or loyalty that, that one might have to stand up for, for, for Ukraine for one's own kind of... That's utterly chilling, but um, but thank you. We needed to hear that. And just finally, for me, Jade, if I if I may, uh, now you've you've met Kirill Badanov, the head of of Ukraine's intelligence agencies. Obviously, he must be preoccupied right now because of the poisoning of his of his wife and other people across the um, intelligence structures. But how did the guy strike you when you when you met him? Can you just sort of bring him to life for us and give us some way of of gauging if he's if, if the right guy for the job, if he's he must be exhausted after eighteen months, nearly two years into this now, is he is he still as as energised as he was at the start, or what was your what's your take on him? It's always a really hard question to answer, especially because, of course, I'm aware of Mr. Bidan, of General Bedanov's professional skill set, but he's actually a really nice guy. Um, he just came across as really nice. He's much less austere than he comes across as perhaps in some of his photos, but he's very focused on the point. He's very methodical. We had a chat for around half an hour, just us, and he, um, I bought him a present actually for him and his wife. It was just like a silly thing, just a little house, and he was very attentive to it. And I imagine that he, of course, anybody would be devastated if that happened to their wife, but uh, she, you mean, obviously she lives with him in the, the Hur compound, the defense intelligence compound and it must just be such a dis distressing time in terms of is he the right man for the job i am in absolutely no place to make a, a judgment on that but i think that he is very focused on what he has to do and he is 
I think there's there's a difference between who he is as a as a strategic thinker and who he is as somebody who sometimes has to get information out maybe to to whip up tensions or you know as part of the frankly enormous information warfare that is going on on all sides thank you so much jade could you just say that again what was the present you brought him if if you're okay sharing it i didn't think i quite heard it it was just like a cute little english house that had little lights in it that you could light up because i thought it must be not very nice for them as a married couple to live in a in the defense intelligence (laughs) compound so got you understood thank you so much we're starting to run out of time, very sadly. Thank you so much, Jade, for joining us. Tony, unless you have any questions for Jaden, please do share them if you do. Let's go to you for your final thoughts. Yeah, well, I, I suppose it's a bit of both, really, David. I was just thinking about you know, what Jade was saying about all these questions about Ukrainian national identity and the kind of ideological propaganda war that's going on the ground. And it just struck me that these are the sorts of conversations that you almost never hear in the West when we're talking about support for Ukraine and how the war is going. And actually, although it's similar in some ways to the arguments that some of these UK people are making over in the US this week, they're all talking in a much more top level way about kind of East versus West and authoritarianism versus democracy and that kind of thing. But actually, these more specific questions about Ukrainian national identity and what this really means in terms of the ideology of the region for there to be a war don't really feature in discussions at all. So that's my kind of observation. I suppose my, my question for Jade would be, do you think it would be helpful if we had these kinds of discussions going on at an international level? Clearly, it's very complicated and lots of people who are involved in these discussions at a legislative level are not totally au fait with the complexity of it. But if you're Liz Truss or if you're Rishi Sunak and you're trying to make this argument to, to Western allies, is it helpful to be talking in those terms? Is that actually a better way to be making the case? I think that the war makes much more sense if you think about it in those terms, because those are the terms that Russia is thinking about it. And those are, in a different way, the terms in which Ukrainians see it as well. And I think that it's, I mean, you read the Russian national security strategy and there's dozens of mentions of historical memory, of identity, of of culture in that broader sense, you know, a national culture. And the only culture that's mentioned in the US national equivalent is agriculture. That's fascinating. That's really interesting. Thank you. Well, thank you, Tony and Jade. Let's go to Dom for your final thoughts. And then Jade will come to you right at the end. Dom Nichols. Well, thanks, David. I just wanted to, well, I'm going to cheat, actually. I'm going to give a final thought and ask Jade a question at the same time. Sorry about that. But Jade, you were were talking about, and you reiterated, reminded us, of course, of the the existential nature of this for for Ukraine, that it, this is not a fight for, well, as well as a fight for values, it is a fight for their lives and their identity in the country and the history. And it chimed with me something that um, Ben Wallace said a few weeks ago and then actually wrote actually for us. And he was making the point about how Ukraine at the moment is almost protecting its children. It's fighting for the next generation. The average age of the soldier at the front line is supposed to be, depending on what you judge it on and the article you read, but we're talking late 30s, early 40s, and, and that's the average. So there's, there's some above that. So it seems like what Ukraine has been trying to protect its children, its, the next generation, to build the country and build the future that it has to have and protect that future. But Ben Wallace was saying that actually it needs those people and it's going to have to it's going to be faced with a decision pretty soon probably as to whether or not to mobilise youngsters. You saw Zeluzny calling for something similar in his essay recently about changing the law to be able to, to get more people at younger ages in. And I just wonder, well, my, so my final my point is, my final thought is we need to be aware that in the coming probably months, I don't think it'll be weeks, but in the coming months, not for spring, I wouldn't have thought Ukraine will be faced with this decision of using up its young men and women, you know, and it will it will involve thousands losing their lives so that's a hell of a decision to make and my cheaty question to jade if you can wrap it into your final thought sorry jade is that analysis correct do you think they have been protecting their children and that they will be faced with that decision to to mobilize more in the next few months thanks thank you yeah i think that they have been protecting their children although i've always understood it in a little bit more of a metaphorical sense mainly because lots of my friends who are involved don't have any children so i presume they weren't talking literally but more broadly, in terms of the mobilisation aspect, 
yes, I, I think that they do need to have a different approach probably to mobilisation. I think on a few levels, certainly more age varied, but also there need to be less, there needs to be fewer exemptions, let's say. It would be nice to see more soldier, more children of, well, bluntly of MPs serving. This is a people's war, this is a popular war. And if you want to be seen as belonging to the people, then well, there we are. I think a, a slightly different issue is to do with morale and making sure that the training can take place. And that's probably somewhere where Western partners would need to step up because it's not possible to do training in Ukraine really on that sort of level, just because Russians will, of course, send drones or, or shell them. And then as a very final point to wrap up, I think that there are also other issues, for example, the fact that there are some people who do not want to fight. You always have that in any war. That doesn't mean that Ukraine should therefore be given over to Russia. It's just that's just what happens. You know, it's a war. You have collaborators, you have traitors, you have some people who don't want to fight for different reasons. None of it is specific to Ukraine at all. But I think maybe there could be some method whereby people could pay some sort of tax so that they could leave the country and then if they did not want to fight, but they could still put an input into the army, into the country's survival. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, a world affairs newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter you can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.